A Platoon of Misery is presented by Eric Hooks. The Scent of a Lady I've seen some bears there lately, my friend the baker blinked to his partner in crime. We laughed, but he had planted a seed of doubt about the wisdom in camping the place we had just told him about. My fellow countrymen moved up here, north of the Arctic Circle, many years ago, because he's so fond of fishing and hunting. He got so well integrated that he even won some competitions in cross-country skiing. The locals looked in disbelief at a winner that comes from a basically flat and even in the coldest winter, often snowless country. He loves to tell the story. Today, he has sold the bakery to his son and only thinks of one thing, salmon. The same can be said about his local friend. Three months before the start of the season, they begin packing and repacking their fishing gear at least once a week. New flies have been tied during the long, dark winter. Lines cleaned and reels parted, oiled and assembled again. It's one long preparation for a short, intense summer with 24 hours of light every day at rivers at even more northern parallels than we were sitting having a beer. One summer, the baker's friend drove home totally disillusioned after losing a 34-pound salmon when the tippet broke. How could he know the size of the fish that he had lost after a long and very bitter fight? The day after the lost battle, a guy from a neighbouring country caught a 34-pound salmon in the same river on a stupid wobbler. Stuck in the jaw of his magnificent fish was a fly tied with all the expectations and dreams that you can think of. For a fly fisher, to the core, the defeat was too much to bear, since the vice where the naked hook got dressed to kill was standing inside the house we were sitting in front of. The baker beamed when he told the story, but his friend was just looking down at his beer. The memory was still a very present nightmare to him. You have to drive to the small town to get in the right mood, letting the landscape in. Stopping at all the rivers, leaning over the railings of the bridges, looking for fish in the very often heavy current. Around 80 miles before the town, you enter the municipality that is only home to around 6,000 souls. There's loads of room here. A little further up the road, you pass the Arctic Circle that spells 24 hours of light in the middle of summer, and in other words, 24 hours of fishing. After visiting the baker and his friend, we drove back to our camp, made dinner, and while we consumed it sitting by the fire, clouds began to roll in over the lake and the wind picked up. Then all hell broke loose with an almost violent thunderstorm. While we retreated to the car, plates in hand, I thought about being experienced enough to put up the tent before the rain. It stood there, ready to shelter us. Up here, thunderstorms can roam around in a valley for days, and so it did. We spent most of our time in the car or the tent, 
reading, and once every day we drove to town. The latter was out of the necessity to sometimes walk around in a shop and stretch our legs. Being outside was like standing in a very cold shower, getting slapped in the face over and over again. It's just the way the weather can be close to the top of the planet. Live with it, be patient and read some thick books. It will pass. For four days, the only difference between day and night was the brightness of the grey light. After all, it was in the middle of summer, north of the Arctic Circle. Then, very late one evening, the sky began to have what could look like a remembrance of colour, and the rain stopped. We crawled out of the tent, listened to the birds that began to sing, and inhaled the strong scent of the soaked forest behind us. With something like a miracle, nearly at the same level as virgin birth, I managed to start a fire with the wet wood. Then we sat down, had a scotch, and enjoyed that the wind and the rain was gone. Nature wakes up as fast as it can up here, and since the time for bringing the next generation forward is extremely limited, as we sat there, the trees were still dripping from the last drops of rain, while life returned around us as if nothing had happened. Over a small island in the middle of the lake, two bohemian waxwings were catching insects in the air. I've never thought of it before, but now I know where those birds spend their time in summer. The insects looked big, and it made something form in the back of my brain. Could it be? On the lake that looked like a mirror, tracks began to form, not straight, but curved and unpredictable in every direction. I moved down to the water and began to observe the reason for all the commotion, and to my joy, it was caddis, not the usual size, but some substantial big buzzing insects that must be the largest caddists existing. It's now, I said to the mother of my daughter. She looked at me and had every good reason to want an explanation. Caddis, I said. They're on the move. And when they are, so are the grayling. The main attraction for me, fishing in the rivers up here, is not trout or salmon, but grayling. The grey lady of the river, as it's nicknamed in the motherland of modern fly fishing. Can't explain exactly why that fish is so intriguing. But maybe it has something to do with the unproportional big dorsal fin, where you can see a rainbow of colours. Or it can be the grayling's willingness to rise from the bottom of the river and take a dry fly. Or is it the scent? When the grayling was given its Latin name, it wasn't, as for so many other animals because of its looks, but its scent. Every year, at the first day of the season, I see fishermen catching the first fish of the day, holding it up under their nose, catching the scent. It's as if they want to make sure that a fish having an odour of thyme still exists. We unloaded the canoe from the top of the car and into the lake. The rods were already rigged. Gliding on the water, I thought about human stupidity. 
we were paddling on a lake, but not a natural one. The big river is blocked with several dams, and that forms lakes and small streams that all lead down to the first dam. The salmon are gone. They used to be numerous. From the dam, the water is led for miles in a tunnel deep down in the rock. Looking at the dry riverbed can bring a tear to your eye, and so it often does for those who live here. They used to go down to the river and catch salmon, but now they can't because of the energy-hungry big cities far down south. Today the catastrophe is beginning to dawn for the politicians in the capital. And maybe there's still time to save the salmon. There was a current starting to drag the canoe forward as we began to sail on the river. Together with the first boils, it washed away my melancholy. I grabbed my rod and tied a big caddis fly to the end of the tippet. There was no doubt about the course of the day, and it was served generously. The surface was full of big winged, fast moving burgers, and the grayling was doing all they could to inhale them. Not an easy task for a fish with a small mouth and an overbite. The grayling were doing rollovers in the water in their effort to get hold of the luscious bugs. Very often the caddis were only drowned for a short while and then kept on buzzing along the surface. It looked like the water was boiling. My daughter's mother did a good job as gilly steering and holding the canoe in the current while I started casting and the fly got a lot of attention from the very first drift. Since the grayling had learned that big caddis have to be attacked with no mercy, they did exactly the same with my lousy imitation. It made them very easy to hook. Fish was caught and released again and again and I spotted a huge dorsal fin waving over the surface. I sat and watched it for a while and at the same time promised my hard-working gilly that if I hooked up with that fish, her job was done. For once, I made a perfect cast and the fly only drifted for a few seconds before the owner of the dorsal fin made an underwater roll over and got hold of the fly. Tight line. Graylings are not fierce fighters and there's normally no big leaps and long rushes, but their love for strong current and the oversized dorsal fin have made them develop a pretty smart trick. This one was a seasoned fellow, and it knew the trick very well, turning 90 degrees in the water, making the power of the current hit the side of the body in the dorsal fin. I suddenly had the feeling that I had hooked up with a huge piece of drifting timber as my rod started bending in a precarious way. The water was deep, so there was really no reason to worry. There were loads of water to fight in, and the fish gave in after a few minutes. I handled it with all the care in the world and admired its perfect fins, the colours in the huge dorsal fin, and not least the colour of its body. Big grayling are not silvery as the small or middle-sized are. They're blue. This one 
had the most excellent blue glare on every scale and a gill cover that looked like mother of pearl. I released it, picked up my paddle and gave my gilly rest all the way back to our camp. Lying in my sleeping bag, I had the take, the fight and especially the look of the fish on repeat. It took a long time before I fell asleep with a big smile on my face. The next morning, while making coffee, the smile evaporated like a jellyfish in the desert. While we slept, a bear had paid our camp a visit, leaving its ill-smelling business card a few feet from the tent. The Platoon of Misery is read by Patrick Johnson, written and produced by Sam Scarvey.